Today's episode of Insufficient Facts is brought to you by All In My Head, an audio drama about Nova, a young woman suffering from sleep paralysis. As she tries to get to the bottom of her condition, she discovers there may be more to the monsters in her dreams than she thinks. Stick around at the end of the episode for a sneak peek of the show. Okay, hi everyone. My name is Christiane, and you're joining us once again for our podcast, Insufficient Facts. Um, So we're really happy to have you here with us today. So like I said, I am Christiane, and joining me as usual are my wonderful co-hosts, Raquel and Kyle. So we have a super exciting topic for you today. Um, The overarching theme of our topic for our episode today is... Space. Space. The final frontier. Um, (laughs) So we're going to be having quite a few topics today going through space. Um, This is, there's so much to talk about that we're going to have to revisit this as a topic once again. Um, We have some pretty specific topics for you today, Um, but this is, we, we, (laughs) the conversation we were having last night over our Slack that we have for this podcast, we are, you know, it's just an exciting topic for us. So I think it's one we're going to have to revisit again, but you're going to get some of that exciting stuff today. So hold on to your pants. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to start you off. We're going to start you off with a recent headline segment, as usual. So kind of Raquel um, is going to start us off with that. But as usual, we'll kind of all chime in. Um, this is a great recent headline. Yeah. Um, but we're going to I'm, I'm not going to give it away. There's a word that we're going to have a, a pronunciation. It came from space. Yeah. It came from beyond our galaxy. Yes. Um, so we'll talk about that. I don't want to give any spoilers yet, but we'll just stay tuned for our recent headline. Um after our recent headline, we're going into our science fiction versus science fact segment. Guess who's talking about that one? It's me. Once again, <laughs> this is kind of my bread and butter, if you haven't been able to tell already. Um, and, and today, we're really going to tap into my extra nerdy side, um, because I'm going to talk to you about <laughs> Star Trek, which is probably my favorite show of all time. And not even like, I feel like the next generation has some real like credit to it. If you like the next generation, then like, yeah, that's understandable. It's a really good show. There's some great episodes, some great characters, like production value is good. And I like the next generation, don't get me wrong, but like my heart belongs to the original series with <laughs> the weird colors and the like styrofoam rocks and the really low uh, budget for any kind of production. Um, so you're going to hear me go off about They did a lot with very little. They did. There's some really amazing. I can't, let's not, I can talk a lot about this. There's a lot that I could say. I know way too many facts about this show, um, so I'll save it for the segment. But we're going to talk about, like, like some of the stuff that they present in this show um, about, like, alien species and actually that we see some of this as, as science and existing in nature, in nature um, here on Earth. It's so going to be hard to get weirder than Star Trek. Oh, God, no. We've been weirder. We've had weirder things than, than Star Trek, so don't worry. Um so after our science fiction versus science fact segment, um, we're going to go into our bizarre science segment. Um, Let's get weird. Where Raquel's going to talk about hibernation, but in the context of extended space travel. Mm-hmm. Can humans hibernate? Can we do it? So she's going to talk to us about that today um, and kind of what science is being done to investigate that, if it's a possibility. And then we're going to go into our classic segment with Kyle. And Kyle is going to tell us about some things that have recently made the headlines that are really actually, um, it's made the headlines because it is a classic of our space exploration program, the Kepler. This is going to be great. It's, yeah. a, it's all about humanity looking outward. Right. So it's it's kind of he's going to give us a wonderful kind of rundown through space exploration and kind of when we started turning our eyes 
to the skies. Yeah. Um, and beyond, right? So he's going to walk us through that. And, and really then, a reflection on the universe is a reflection on our own selves. Right. We learn a exactly. lot about ourselves in yeah, studying the universe. And then we will, as usual, end with our um, lifting the veil segment and tell you a little bit about what's going on in our lives. Um, what are we excited about? What's going on? What are we nervous about? So stay tuned for all this wonderful space-related extravaganza. Um, but let's start with our recent headlines. So today we're going to talk about... Uh, object that was flying through space in our recent headlines. So this interstellar object, Oumuamua, am I saying that right, Christian? Oumuamua. Oumuamua. Yeah, which is a Hawaiian if name. If you're struggling with it, that's okay. <laughs> I'm struggling with it too. Oumuamua. Oumuamua. All right. Yeah. So this is an object that scientists it came no, from it came outer from space. A, yes, outside of our solar system. The solar system has a visitor. Mm -hmm. And it lost that visitor really quickly. It yeah. kind of hurtled through, kind of tumbling head over heels, and then hurtled right on out of our solar system. Yeah. It, it's got somewhere to be. I don't know where, but it's, it's on a mission. At 200,000 miles per hour, it's got <laughs> bigger things to do. Yeah. And about, what is it, like a half a mile long? It's we a think. pretty large object. Some cigar-like rock that really... Is busy, but that's yeah. that's our recent headline for you today. Is we're going to tell you a little bit about Oumuamua, oh, the visitor oh, wow. from outer space. I think it was an an, an alien surfboard. <laughs> Some people think that too. They think you know maybe an alien uh, artifact. Yeah. But anyway, why has this made headlines, Raquel? Recently, why are we talking about yeah, what is this thing? So this is a mystery, actually, to scientists. They don't know exactly what this is, but we do know that. Because of its speed as it came through our solar system, that it probably is not from our solar system. Well, I don't think we explain what this thing is. So this is, <laughs> that's the conundrum really is it's not an asteroid. It's not. It's not a from our galaxy. Comet. It's not. Yeah. It's or from not, our solar for, system. From our solar system. Yeah. yeah. So scientists aren't exactly sure what it is, but. They have determined that it's not not an alien probe, <laughs> which is what I love about science. Is like you can make these observations and try to determine what something is, and you can also determine what it is not not. Right. So you this... can't disprove <laughs> that it's an alien probe. So it's possible that is an it is an alien probe. Right. So this this if you look at the depictions uh, online, it looks like a really long cigar shaped rock that yeah. has come hurtling from outside Literally our solar tumbling. Yeah, tumbling head over heels uh, through our our solar system, and it's actually going at such great speeds that it's going to leave our solar system. It, it, it can't be grabbed by any of our gravitational forces from any of our planetary bodies or our sun. It has so much force that it's just going to kind of tear right through and then depart and we'll probably never see it again. Yeah. But it's a weird shape too. It's not a normal like what you would think of as an asteroid shape. It's, comet, yeah. it's very long and and very like cigar shaped and 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 very weird for for some kind of asteroid. And that's been a huge part of the debate about this thing is like, why is it such a weird shape? Yeah. And why is it going so fast? And why is it tumbling and not in a direct? So the thing about this is that this object rotates both on... So think about like a, a surfboard flying through space. You would think it would just glide on the surface, but no, this thing is just flip-flopping all around. Yeah. So it rotates both on the horizontal axis and on the 
Well, I guess we don't know if it's vertical or horizontal. Some sort of interdimensional surfing alien lost its board, wiped out, (laughs) and its board is hurtling through our solar system. Yeah, Yeah, pretty much. So the way that we can study these things and kind of understand the shape of it, right, is pretty far away. And so picture it. Somehow they know it's a deep red color. I still don't know how they know it's that color, but somehow they know it's a deep red color. But, you know, to find out the shape of it, you can kind of study how it's moving through space and if you can kind of correctly calculate the forces that it's under um, and how fast it's going. Light, how light reflects off right, of it. Right, then you can kind of get maybe a ballpark of what the shape is, but there is this paper related to this object that was, it's in, it's been coming, it's coming out of Harvard um, from these physicists there. And they basically um, looked at, at how it was rotating and, and how fast it was moving and, and the direction in which it was moving. And they basically said that they think it's almost more pancake-shaped in that it's very broad and very, very thin. And they think that's why they, in their discussion section of this paper, they actually say that it could be a solar sail. So literally a sail from someone's like solar wakeboard. Isn't it like Treasure Planet they have something like yeah. this? It's like a solar sail. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but um, so they think it could, they, they say it could be some like detritus from a solar sail that's just kind of floating through space because it's catch, catching a lot of the, the force that's propelling it is from solar radiation um, that's kind of propelling it through space. And they say, well, it could also be a probe. We don't know. Like, yeah. So this is, you know, from, from Harvard. They're saying we, we could be these things. We don't really know. The leading scientists. Well... There's some scientists. I don't know if they're, they're people have definitely kind of pushed back up against this a little bit. It's probably right. just an odd rock flying very quickly through space. Yeah, there's definitely debate because we can't go out there and immediately snap a picture of it and say this is exactly what it looks like. So. Right, and it's already gone, so we yeah. can only work with what we have as it kind of flew by us. It was, and you can't anticipate these things really. You yeah. can only kind of notice it as it's entering our solar system and, and getting into range of all of our technology essentially around earth yeah. and then you know once you notice it and say hmm that kind of looks weird then you've got to kind of track it for as long as you can and then then it's gone so who knows maybe dozens of uamuas have passed through our solar system for eons and we just couldn't pick it up who yeah. knows yeah but i love that it's traveling so fast that literally it <laughs> can't be stopped <laughs> this is what distinguishes this object from an from an object in our own solar system this is why we know it's from outer space, like yeah. interstellar space. It's because it's moving so fast. Yeah. So, so an object from the Kuiper belt, which is this ring of rocks between Mars and Jupiter, is full of little meteors. It's, and then there's the Oort cloud, which is this giant cloud of ice that surrounds the entire solar system. Mm-hmm. And so scientists have ruled out objects from those two, Kuiper belt and Oort cloud. So this thing had to have come from completely outside the solar system. Yep. And it's like this little inter- interstellar surfboard flying through our solar system. And fast enough to not be pulled off trajectory mm-hmm. by any of the objects within our solar system. Right. So it's it's very bizarre. And then there are other weird things about it, like it doesn't seem to have a tail, like a comet tail. Mm-hmm. So that can't really explain its its velocity or its how fast it's moving. Um, so there's a lot of weird things about it. So it's definitely captured the the minds of of some of our physicists and astronomists and, and folks who study what's beyond. So the other thing that I mentioned to um, our group here is this reminded me a lot when I first heard this headline. There's there's an episode of, of Star Trek where, um, in the original series, where they have this thing, it's called the Doomsday Machine is, is the episode title. And I rewatched it last night after we were talking about this, but... Um, 
it looks like Oumuamua. It looks like this cigar-shaped thing, and it travels from beyond our, our galaxy in Star Trek, the, this doomsday machine that looks like Oumuamua, and it actually is from beyond the galaxy and comes in and it destroys planets and consumes them for energy and just moves from planet to planet and it kill, like basically destroys and deteriorates these planets and then consumes them. So they have to figure out a way to destroy the planet killer. Um, I think the fact that this thing came and left is a good sign. Yeah. We're still here. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't a, a you know, warhead sent from a much more advanced society to obliterate any potential competition. Yeah. For those of you who are interested in reading more of a story like this, What If Aliens Did Visit Our Solar System, I recommend a book called Three-Body Problem. Yeah, absolutely. Trilogy. What if Earth did make contact with the alien civilization? Mm -hmm. Or that if aliens were watching us, what would would the universe look like? Mm -hmm. And this is a more recent... it's a trilogy that's now ended, but it's it's not uh, necessarily an older like sci-fi classic. It's contemporary. It's, it's pretty it's contemporary. Does, it's been winning lots of awards. Yeah. Uh, so three body problem. It's on my to read list for sure. I've heard yeah. a lot of great things about Same it. Um, but there's yeah, there's a lot of great kind of um, maybe from a more uh, human perspective. But there's this uh, a classic novel like Stranger in a Strange Land about. Um, someone who grows up on Mars and then comes to live on Earth and kind of how he struggles to fit in. But that's more of a uh, insight into, like, humanity rather than what if we really were confronted with complete alien life. And that's an older one. Um, But definitely a lot of cool reading that you can read. There's science fiction. This is one of science fiction's favorite topics is, you know, if we do find life out there that's intelligent life. I think it's exciting to think about as we get better tools for, you know, detecting... Mm -hmm random, fascinating objects like this that came through our solar system. We're going to just keep learning more and more and more. Yes, definitely. So The universe is our playground. It really is. And I think, you know, <laughs> there's always exceptions to the rule, right? There's always going to be unusual things yeah. out there for us to discover and find. And that's what makes it so, so exciting is uh, there's always something new to discover. Okay, so let me um, transition. I, I mentioned Star Trek already, but now I'm going to only talk about Star Trek in our science fiction versus science fact segment. So Star Trek, the original series, um, probably one of the most famous characters from the Star Trek franchise is Spock, right? So Spock is um, first seen in the original series, and he is also um, has a couple guest episodes in The Next Generation. And, of course, they rebooted the original series with some movies recently. Um, but let's talk about the biology of, of Spock as an alien species, right? So he's not a human. He's not from Earth. He is from the planet Vulcan. Um, and he is of a, a race called the Vulcans, right? So that's kind of what he belongs to as a, as a species, if you can think of it that way. And um, in, in Star Trek lore, they basically, they do kind of explain some of the biology of um, how Vulcans are as species and how they differ from humans, right? So there's some visual things that they have differently, but also one of the cool things that you learn about Spock or about Vulcans is they actually have green blood. So if you watch the series or if you've watched any of the new movies, you'll know that um, one of the other characters, Dr. McCoy, one of his favorite insults or kind of pet things to throw at Spock is he calls him a, a green-blooded hobgoblin, and that's because he does have... Such an insult. <laughs> ...green blood, right? Um, but why does he have green blood? Well, there's actually like a, a chemical reason for this, right? So in, in the context of Star Trek, 
Vulcans have um, blood that is the blood cells essentially are copper-based. So if you, to give you a little bit of background about our own blood cells, so we have these cells called um, hemoglobin. So that is kind of the units in our blood that allow oxygen that we breathe in to bind to our blood cells and then be transported throughout our body, right? So hemoglobin, the real centerpiece of a hemoglobin uh, molecule is the iron at the center of it. So the iron is what helps the binds to oxygen, essentially. So mm-hmm. because we have iron-based blood, our blood looks red. Yeah. But if you were to have a different kind of metal as the base for your blood, so in this case, um, copper, you can have two copper kind of um, molecules in, as part of your unit for your, your, your blood, and then that will help bind oxygen instead. So you, instead of having iron-based blood, you have copper-based blood, and then your blood looks green. So this is actually, as a, a, in terms of, of biology, this is something that absolutely exists in nature. So there, while it seems quite unusual and strange and maybe alien, right, to us as human beings, um, invertebrates have, uh, quite a few invertebrates have copper-based blood. So they have bluish greenish blood and perhaps one of the um, most famous examples that we use actually for um, one bio- of my favorite critters yeah for biomedical purposes is um, horseshoe crabs so horseshoe crabs have copper-based blood so they have this like bluish green blood mm-hmm. that if you don't know is a huge um, hugely used in the biomedical field so they harvest the blood from these horseshoe crabs yeah. and they actually collect them and and um, collect their blood Do you know why they harvest the blood uh, well, I know that part of the reason is that we're not able to artificially manufacture um, the their blood. So the only way that we can get it for these biomedical purposes is to harvest it from the horseshoe crabs. But I forget exactly. Do you remember the reason why we use it as a... The med- reason we use horseshoe blood... Horseshoe crab, crab blood. Horseshoe crab blood yeah. is because the blood is incredibly sensitive to toxins. Yeah. Mm, so yeah. even toxins in the tiniest, tiniest, tiniest amount will turn the blood completely into jello. It's mm-hmm. pretty brilliant. Which protects the horseshoe crab. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so if you want to find out if there's any toxins in a sample, you just add a little bit to horseshoe crab blood and boop, yep. you know, yep. right away. It's used a lot in microbiology because the blood is really great at detecting these little toxins, which bacteria shed all the time. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. It's really great at So there's this those. antibiotic um, resistance that the horseshoe crab naturally has. But every mm-hmm. year there's this incredible horseshoe crab like Roundup. They get a ton of them, yeah. drain them, and send them back in the ocean. Right. And the, the interesting thing is, like, you know, the, like I, we can't artificially manufacture it, so they have to be collected and the blood has to be um, drawn from them. But then no one's really been studying how they fare after they're released back and their blood has been drained. So they're not yeah, complete. to get more they're not, information <clears throat> on that. Yeah, they're not, not killed. Well. They're not killed, right? So we don't completely exsanguinate. That's the term for draining them completely of their blood. We don't com- We don't exsanguinate the horseshoe crabs completely. So they, they are alive by the time they're released, but no one's really done any studies um, about these horseshoe crabs to see if they are have a higher mortality rate after... Um, having their blood drained and being released. Um, and we could actually be really negatively impacting the populations of horseshoe crabs on the whole uh, by doing this for such a large extent and for you know many, many years. So that work does need to be done. And obviously there's work being done to try and um, artificially manufacture this mm-hmm. as well. There's some groups mm-hmm. that have artificial horseshoe crab blood, yeah, but, but it's, it's more of an industry systemic thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
It's hard to implement. Yeah. So copper-based blood, though, right? That's one of the big things about their blood is they have copper-based blood. And this is actually, you can find this around, uh, across quite a few invertebrates. So The fun side note about copper-based blood is that the biochemistry of iron-based hemoglobin, you can get four oxygens on a hemoglobin. Mm-hmm. You can only get two oxygens on a copper-based blood. So if, you, if you're in a race with a crab... Uh, the rat, crab will probably lose because it can't it can't hold as I much think, oxygen. I think mm. I read that they have two copper, um, two coppers, whereas we just have one iron. So I think that Ooh, might be in fancy. part how they're making that up is they actually just have two molecules of copper for our one molecule of iron. But yeah, there are different binding properties depending on the the metal that is used, right? So Spock can keep up with the rest of the crew. Spock can keep up, and he, he also can definitely keep up. And he also Vulcan is supposed to have slightly higher gravity than. Um, than Earth. So he, you know, in higher gravity situations, you kind of get more, uh, your bone density increases and your muscle mass increases because you have like, imagine if you had weights on you all the time, like you had five or 10 pound weights on all of your limbs and you would kind of naturally adapt to that and build more muscle mass to compensate and get denser bones, right? So this is kind of like in higher instances of gravity, if it's not a lot more, then you can kind of build muscle mass to accommodate the the increase in gravity. This is the opposite of what happens on the space station, right? So when you're in an instance of low to no gravity, you actually have to force yourself to work out all the time so that you can maintain your muscle mass because otherwise Mm -hmm. you're just not using it and you don't have to push up against the force of gravity in the atmosphere all the time. So And this is like a serious... Concerned yeah. for astronauts. Yeah, exactly. So they they have to work out all the time. They have to really make sure they're maintaining their muscle mass and their bone mass. Otherwise, they can get like osteoporosis where their bones density decreases and their muscles start to die and atrophy. So this is they're constantly working out in space. And they, they have to have these like weighted strapped machines so that they can actually have resistance to train against. So it's a really big concern for space travel or any kind of low or no gravity situation. Yeah. So that kind of nicely kind of allows us to... Switch to Raquel's segment about hibernation in in space, her our bizarre science segment. Yeah, let's get weird. So, I titled this segment. I just want to say the title. Yes, I think go it's for it. Kind of deep sleep in the stars, <laughs> but not, not in your dreams. <laughs> not in your dreams. Literal, literal deep sleep. So when we talk about hibernation, the immediate example that might come to mind would be hibernating bears. But fun fact, bears are not true hibernators. They actually enter a state known as torpor, which is hibernation is made up of a series of torpor episodes. So both of these conditions, torpor and hibernation, are survival tactics. And this is what animals use to deal with conditions that are either like not environmentally friendly, like if during winter, bears will hibernate or because of food, food scarcity, which is something that um, happens throughout nature all the time. Mm. So it's not just bears that hibernate. Lots of things. There's lots of instances of... So why would people need to hibernate? Yeah. If you're taking them out to space. <laughs> That's one reason. But also... Is space big? <laughs> hibernation sort of big. It's has... like the biggest thing we know about, right? I guess so. I don't know how long, it is, like, how long would it take to get to Mars. 300 days, right? Mm, I think so, yeah. 
Like with how fast our rockets can go right now? Yeah, 300 days. Uh, and yeah. depends on the, the orbit cycle. So there's like a close approach where if you launch from Earth at a certain time, depending on how like relative to the orbit of Earth to Mars, then there's the distance is the shortest distance to travel. Other times it would be like much farther for yeah. to travel. It's a little under a year. So for a kind of interstellar space travel, you would want to maybe hibernate. Yeah. If, yeah. if you're like years and years um, on on some kind of traveling vessel, it'd be nice to to and also just think about like the energy consumption required to feed um, people who are active all the time. And, and, you know, the resources you would need to actually pack on to the ship to feed everyone would be a lot lessened if you could kind of have them in this hibernation state for an extended period of the journey. You'd probably be less bored, too. Yeah. <laughs> less likely to have mental issues maybe yeah that's one of the definitely one of the concerns for astronauts is they come back with um some psychological issues right. that they have to work through but you know we're coming up with methods to combat all of those issues so we also use hibernation in like the medical setting right now it's already used as a treatment for different types of traumas like heart attacks, is this stroke, like an epilepsy. In, an induced coma? Is that Yeah, basically? so the common method that's used is hypothermia, severe mm, hypothermia. Yeah. And it can only be done for days at a time mm-hmm. or else the body starts. It's not a natural condition for no. human humans to go into torpor or hibernation. So we don't have the natural enzymes that will... You know, combat things like having your blood coagulate because you're right, too you're cold not moving for too long. Or, yeah. yeah, but then then it's, again, the, still the issue of like muscle loss is a thing, right? If you're, this is not even if you're hibernating, but if you're bed bound for a long time, you just totally lose your muscle, muscle mass, mass and yeah. bone mass. Yeah. So with hibernation in animals that do naturally go through torpor and hibernation, they don't experience that muscle loss and bone loss because their metabolism gets slowed down mm-hmm. to such a rate where they're not consuming as much energy. So the, right. one of the issues with you know astronauts who go out into space for extended periods of time is that they're still consuming energy at the same rate, right. yeah. but they're not able to build back up that mm-hmm. strength. Mm-hmm. So one of the... There was a meeting in October, the American Physiological Society, where actual astronauts and scientists came together and were proposing using synthetic torpor, which is different from what we currently use to induce like this hibernation state Mm -hmm. in humans. Synthetic torpor would be using the actual biological conditions that animals that go through torpor exhibit to put someone in a torpor. Right. So kind so of it's not just lowering their body temperature at this point. What they want to do is create the exact biochemical compositions that allow torpor. Right. So instead of just forcing them to sleep, you can also make it so that they are consuming less energy and their muscle mass is preserved and like all the things that ha- change in your body chemistry um, or that you would you would need to change with your body chemistry to actually have a successful torpor state or hibernation kind of period, then that would really make it a feasible or a a more useful tool for astronauts or, you know, traveling through space through a long period of time. Man, do you remember just taking long long road trips when you were a kid? (laughs) I would always fall asleep. Like go to grandma's house? And you're there? I remember, like, how many episodes of Rugrats is this? (laughs) She's like, it's three. I was like, ugh. (laughs) Just, just put me out. Oh, yeah, yeah. Just, just put me out. Just let me sleep. 
We hope you're enjoying today's episode of Insufficient Facts. If you have a topic you'd like us to talk about or a follow-up question to any of the topics we discuss, we'd love to hear from you. Visit our website, insufficientfacts.com, and click on Ask the Panelists. You can submit your question, and we may discuss it on a future episode of the show. Now, please enjoy the rest of the episode. So let's let's talk about maybe some of, you know, we've talked about the cool, maybe some other interesting ways of thinking about space and space travel, but... What about the classics? Like, what have we done that has really stood the test of time and really made us progress uh, in not only our knowledge of, of space, but our knowledge of ourselves and science in general? What are some of the classic things that have happened in yes. our journey, our pursuit of the stars? So Kyle's going to kind of take us away with our classics segment about space, the tra- <clears throat> classics of space since, travel. Since antiquity, man <laughs> has gazed up at the night sky <laughs> oh God. and wondered, what is my place in this universe? <laughs> No, but seriously, did you uh, did you guys hear about Kepler, this NASA probe? Yeah, it's iconic. As of recording, this is just after Halloween. Uh, it, they were tiring Kepler. Kepler is this little probe that's been in space for about ten years, and it's been gazing at this it's been gazing at this little patch of the of the sky, mm-hmm. and it and it's move, finding planets. Yeah, it's been finding planets, a lot of planets. <laughs> for so a long it's time. it's confirmed over two thousand planets, and it turns out actually using Kepler's data. It is this is the, the the most remarkable fact that I've learned this year is that between twenty and fifty percent of all stars have not only just a planet but planets. Mm-hmm. So there's more planets in the universe than there are stars. Yeah, like our star has what, like eight planets around it. Yeah, and that's just one star. So probably there's more planets, and a lot of those have may have life. Right. Yeah. This is absolutely remarkable, and we owe this to Kepler. So thank you for your service. You're out there past Uranus or something right now, gazing in the night sky. Yeah, but and, and you know before Kepler, before they launched Kepler to kind of and the, the the goal of Kepler when they launched it was to kind of find other planets orbiting around other stars. Yeah, 35 years ago, we didn't know that other planets even existed. We didn't have proof of other planets, and then Kepler has found. Over 2,000. Completely blown the, the roof off. Right. So this has been an amazing period of discovery um, and really increased our knowledge about what kind of worlds are out there, how many, like how likely is it to encounter a planet. It's funny, in our first episode, we talked about that moment of realizing that you are one of the smallest things in the universe mm-hmm. and all of I'm going to make you feel so small in this segment. I'm going to get real tiny in this classic section. And so it's just sort of to honor the memory of Kepler. um, I'm going to call this classic section all the stuff you know about the universe, but you don't know how you know them. (laughs) And so we're going to – so first we're going to talk about how do we know that the Earth is round. Some people. Then we're going to (laughs) say how do we know that the sun is the center of our solar system. Then we're going to say, how do we know about other galaxies? Then we're going to ask, is the universe static? Does it change? And last, we're going to say, what is the fate of the universe? So just, you know, it's going to be a A mellow segment. A journey. It's going to be a mellow segment. (laughs) A journey of discovering why, of discovery, why you know things that you know, but you don't necessarily know why we know them as a collective intelligence. Right. So let's start, let's start at home with Earth. So I hope the flat earthers are listening. This in. might be the most contentious point, yeah. <laughs> and it's the first one. Oh, this is Sorry the good one. If anyone's triggered right now. So 
Spoiler alert, the Earth is round. I mean, you can just watch a little boat sail across the horizon, which, by the way, is only three miles away. So every time you go for a jog, you can just say, I didn't just run three miles, I ran across the horizon. <laughs> I did a horizon's distance. I did two. Why is that not a distance of a measurement? I did, I did, I did, a, did, couple, I did a couple horizons this morning, so three miles. across town. I got a couple horizons to drive. It's going to take me Love like 40 it. minutes. But you, you don't have to just guess it. You can actually measure the entire circumference of this round Earth that we live on. And, and this Greek guy did it in 240 BC with sticks and shadows. Right. So if you don't believe that the earth is round, we've known about this for thousands of years. So he... You can prove it with <laughs> physics. Yeah. The the math and the science is against you on this one. Sorry. It's, I would just give up. Go go find so this Greek battle. So this Greek scientist, he's hanging out in Alexandria, Egypt, which then was part of Greece. And he had heard about a well in another town just over the way, where on the summer solstice, the entire bottom of the well would be illuminated, this beautiful illumination, and none of the buildings around the well would cast a shadow, so the sun was directly overhead. Mm -hmm. But he also knew, because he was hanging out in Alexandria for a while, that during the summer solstice, there were shadows in his town, and it wasn't that the buildings were crooked, it's that the sun was actually at an angle. Mm -hmm. So there must be an angle between... So the Earth's, Earth's surface must be kind of tilted a little bit, right. the surface itself. So by taking a stick and measuring the length of a shadow, he was able to determine that um, the circumference of the Earth is 30,000 miles. And this is 240 BC, and he's 99% accurate. Right. So with measuring shadows, if you without measure... Without the internet. Right. <laughs> but without a lot of things, without even like a calculator, <laughs> you know, he was able to really accurate. And, and you know, the part of this is like if you can measure a shadow, the length of a shadow at the same instance in two different areas that are separated by, you know, a decent amount of, of land, you can kind of calculate the curvature of the earth and therefore the circumference which is what he did which is amazing right, right. just pay attention to your shadow throughout the day you'll see the shadow get longer yeah. and so you can measure that distance math made real guys this like new it, it, he's, he was kind of using this new field called math <laughs> remember all that math. stuff you were saying you would never use in real life here it is there you go so that's how we know that the earth is round so let's go up a level why don't we Yes. How do we know that the sun is the center of our solar system? Because kind of like, okay, well, let's go back to the Wayback Machine. And let's say you're coming out of, you know, the field. You just hunted a mammoth. You've got your spears. And you go into your cave. With oh, your wow, friend, we're going way back. Okay. With your friend Ungung. Oh, you okay. say, wow, Ungung, it feels, it feels great to be the center of the universe, doesn't it? But you'd be wrong. Um, <laughs> Even after Ungung, people believe that the Earth was Ungung, the center. you are so of- wrong. <laughs> The Very Earth is not the center of the universe. Yeah. But that was the model for a really long time. But if you start paying attention to the night sky, you can pick out from the stars the planets. And if you follow the planets, if the Earth is the center of the whole solar system, then everything will go around in a nice circle. Mm-hmm. However, paying attention to the planets, they do this weird backwards movement mm-hmm. they that we call, jump re- around. They call, we call it retrograde motion. So if you're looking at the planet, it's like it's going across and then it goes backwards a little bit, does a little spin and then continues forward again. And so some people say, well, maybe the planets are going in circles that are on circles that go around us. <laughs> but I, I don't know if that really explains anything. And so you might have heard of this guy Copernicus. So Copernicus was the first guy who really put it down on paper and said, like, no, 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 no. We orbit the sun, you know, that big bright thing in the sky, and all the other planets also orbit the sun. And so he wrote this down in 1543, the year of his death, because he knew he was going to get owned by the church for this. And so that was probably wise. And a lot of people suffered later on. Um, Including 
Galileo. Yeah, Galileo, who's coming up right now. Because this idea of Copernicus really got people thinking. So 60 years later, an actual person named Kepler suggested that planets don't follow circular orbits. They follow elliptical orbits, which does a really good job of explaining the retrograde motion. Because now the orbits aren't these perfect circles. They're actually kind of oblate. And every planet has a slightly different ellipse that it follows. And this explains why, if you're following Mars or Venus, it can go forward a little bit, go back to a little loop, and then continue going forward a little bit. Because mm -hmm. all the ellipses are slightly different. And then around the same time... This guy Galileo was using his telescopes and noticed that the planets are sometimes closer and sometimes further away. It's kind of like how the moon itself has phases. old-fashioned observation. Yeah, just mm -hmm. take your little telescope, look at the night sky. Every night, go out, you're just like, okay, it was here tonight, let's see where it is tomorrow. Mm -hmm. And the thing that was really suspicious for Galileo, so if everything orbits Earth, if that's the model right now, okay, so how come I can see a bunch of little moons orbiting Jupiter? What the yeah. Shouldn't they be orbiting us? Yeah. It seems kind of suspicious if those moons are going around Jupiter and Jupiter's going around. Like, right. I think, okay, so yeah, he's like, ah, no, I'm really up on this. I'm really big on this Kep Kepler idea. Mm -hmm. And then finally, the last straw was this guy Newton. You know, the guy who did F equals MA? He invents Force this. equals mass times acceleration yeah. for those. Right. <laughs> you know, maybe it's been a while since basic physics. So he, he invents this concept of gravity and comes up with this universal law of gravity, which has an equation with it. The force between two objects is related to the product of the masses divided by the square of the distance between those masses. And so from this universal law of gravity, you can derive Kepler's laws. And Kepler's laws just came from observing stars and observing planets. Mm -hmm. But then Newton was able to predict those laws using just fundamental ideas of math and physics and gravity. Right. So the, the gravitational laws, to put it in kind of a model for you, if you're big and you're next to another really big thing, you're going to have a lot of attractive force. You're mm -hmm. going to really be drawn together, maybe to the point of colliding with one another, right? If you have more distance between you, that force is not as strong, so maybe you can kind of find a nice happy medium without colliding into one another in space. And then if you're small and really far away, then there's even less force, attractive force between the two of these. And this will make the sun is massive, right? That's why it has all of these objects rotating around exactly. it. Exactly. So the attraction to bigger objects is what makes our solar system work. Mm -hmm. And actually in the big scheme of, in, on the universal level, like if you looked compared all the forces, like electromagnetic, strong force, weak force, gravity is actually like Very a weak. billion, 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 billion times weaker than those forces. Yeah. But it's going to come back in my segment in yes. a very dark and scary way. Yeah, so hold on. Dun, dun, dun. So don't rule get, out gravity yet. Yeah, it's it's a big it's a major player. It just, you know, takes takes some distance and time and to really happen. All right, so it's 1900. Imagine yourself. You've got your top hat on. Like we've solved all the problems in physics. We know that all the sun them. is the center of our solar we system. We know that the sun is the center of our and the earth is round. Yeah. Okay, so and we Actually, know that we live in this universe called a galaxy. We call it the Milky Way. So if you look up at night on a clear night in, in not Los Angeles, <laughs> low, yeah, I was just low light pollution, you will see this big milky streak, a great starry river across the night sky. Like someone spilled milk and it's running across the sky. It's, so in 1900, you would say, hey, this is, this is our universe. This is our home. I can see the whole dang thing. Okay, so at the end of this year, hopefully you're going to feel smaller. Okay. <laughs> That's our goal. Yeah. So we know that other galaxies actually exist. We're not the only galaxy in this universe. And we know this because of the work of one Edwin Hubble. 
and a miraculously clever woman named Henrietta Leavitt. And and so first I'm going to talk about the debate, then I'm going to talk about Henrietta, then Edwin. Okay, so in the 1920s, like I said, people thought that the Milky Way not only was a galaxy, but it was the entire universe. But people were looking at the night sky, and they noticed this one really weird fuzzy object. Mm-hmm. It looked like a puff of gas, a nebula in our galaxy. And usually a nebula contains some stars. You can figure out kind of like how far away they are, how many stars are in this little nebula. But this one fuzzy object had way too many stars and way too many supernova remnants inside of it. But... They were so dim. There was no way this little thing could have been within our own universe and yet have so many of these stars, but yet be so... So it didn't really quite make sense. So there's just one little blemish in this model. Okay. But, one little fuzzy dot. So that's all it takes. So we got to figure out how... So one where, little how, question. Yep. So how does this little fuzzy... How far away is this little fuzzy thing? So back to Henrietta. In 1908, she was working as a computer as an, at an observatory. And this is... She's literally a person who computes. This is what a computer is. Mm-hmm. So she discovers before the, computers did it for us. We had people who would, she was working as a computer guys. Yeah, and so she's she discovers this new type of star that has this super specific way of pulsing. So it's dim and then it's bright and then it's dim and then it's bright. And so these she called Cepheid variables, and they act like measuring sticks inside of the universe and inside the galaxy. So using these v- variable stars, we can figure out exactly how far away. That star and everything around it is. Okay, so flash forward to Edwin Hubble and his Mount Wilson Observatory. So he finds one of Henrietta Leavitt's pulsing stars in this fuzzy nebula and observes it for a week. Mm -hmm. What he finds was that this object was super far away, like way, way, (laughs) way too far away to be in our own galaxy. And this was irreputable evidence that this nebula wasn't just... In our galaxy, it was itself an entirely new galaxy. Right. So it now just got we're smaller. <laughs> another scale up. The galaxy isn't everything. There's definitely other galaxies out there. So I have a question about this this variable star. Is the reason they were able to calculate distance? So if it if it is pulsing, it's going dim and then bright and then dim and then bright. And it's a, a is it? I'm assuming it's a very reliable. Like it always has. They all a, behave the same way. Right. It's very reliable, so you can kind of say it's going to dim for this length of time and then be bright for this length of time. And if we know how fast light travels, then you can kind of measure how far away something is because you have Yeah, this. you can measure the brightness right. and certain other physical properties cool. of these stars, and you can just know exactly how far away the star is. Mm-hmm. And so it, it was about... So 1920s, Edwin Hubble, using Levitt's variable stars, discovers we're not alone. We have other galaxies. We have neighbors. Okay, Cool. So, <laughs> yeah, other a, galaxies. Since 1925, we yeah. know that there's completely other galaxies. It's getting our universe is getting bigger, and we're feeling smaller. Okay. So we're not done with Dr. Edwin Hubble. We're gonna learn about. He was an important dude. He's an important guy, and so we're gonna now ask the question: Is the universe static? So Edwin Hubble is looking at more of these Cepheid variable stars, and he's looking at more fuzzy nebulas, and he's discovering there's more and more galaxies. And what we mean by static is is that is it stable? Is it just kind of exists and has existed the same way forever and isn't really changing? That was a question that was being asked because that's kind of what was assumed. It's like sort of like, you know, 
our solar system has been around for a long time and doesn't change that much. You know, they thought the same thing about the universe. Right. This is a fun one. And, and this is sort of an accidental discovery and sort of a scary one, actually. But in order to explain this, I need to explain something called redshift and blue shift, mm. which is kind of like the Doppler shift, but for light. So we've all heard ambulances and fire trucks go by. And as they're coming towards us, the kind of pitch of it is very high, like, wee, wee, wee. And as it goes by, it goes, wee, wee, wee. Yeah. The sound changes yeah. when it's approaching you versus when it's leaving from where you're standing, going right. away from you. Exactly. And light can do the exact same thing. So light moving away from you is redder, and oh, light yes. moving towards you is yeah. bluer. Mm -hmm. So we call it redshift and blue shift. Okay, right. So let's get back to Hubble, who's looking at all of these different galaxies. He's determined that there's like... 20 of them at the time of his discovery that I'm going to talk about here. So, okay, so he's looking at all of these galaxies, and he's noticing that a lot of them are redshifted. So they're all moving away from us. Mm -hmm. They're all leaving us. And you'd say, okay, well, that's fine. Maybe there's also a lot of blue-shifted ones. But he never really found many blue-shifted ones. So, like, almost all of the galaxies he was looking at were moving away. Right. So you could look, you know, you look in every direction and you're like, wow, well, that's moving away from me. And then you turn a little bit, a couple of degrees to the left. And you're like, oh, that's also move up. Like any direction you look, he was like, wow, all of these things are moving out. I must really stink. <laughs> yeah. Some, something's going on here. This I, is what happened to me at break in high school. <laughs> People would move away. No. <laughs> OK, but not only that, but because you can figure out not only that they're moving away and because of the variable stars, I can figure out how far away they are. And mm. it turns out get this, the further away the galaxy is, the faster it's moving away from us. Right. So it's continuing to increase in speed as it gets further and further out, essentially. Right. So the universe is ex is sort of expanding. And it, it, it's like, so if you extrapolate out, like, okay, if the universe is expanding, that means it must have come from a something, a center. Mm. And so you can extrapolate back based off of how fast the galaxies are moving away. Mm -hmm. And what you get is an age for the universe, which is 14 billion years old. 14. So this is where the idea and conception of the Big Bang started to come in. Right. So galaxies further away are redshifted, so they're moving away, and they're moving away faster the further away. And so, and if you go backwards, you get the Big Bang. And this is crazy. So this isn't just like... The galaxy itself is moving away. This is like time and space, like the very fabric of space-time right. exploded into existence at the Big Bang and is now expanding. But side note, this doesn't mean that the universe has a center. Everywhere is the center of the universe. Mm -hmm. Confusing. So, right. you, the they were astron <laughs> astronomers we, in early We early are a times, center. <laughs> yes. They weren't necessarily wrong, but they were wrong. Right. But I, this is sort of like the way they extrapolated this is like if you, you know, fire a gun or someone fires a gun at, at like a CSI crime scene, they can like tell from the direction that the bullet hit impacted and like how fast it was traveling. They yep. can kind of extrapolate where it originated, like how fast it was moving and where it originated from. So that's what they were doing with galaxies that are moving away from us, right, yeah. is if they understand how fast it's going, you can kind of, and how, you know, you can get an, a metric for how long it's been moving and, and how, therefore an yes. age of the universe. Yes. Yeah. 
And so, you know, the universe isn't exactly expanding into something because there is no something outside of the universe. That we know of. There is no space-time outside of our <laughs> space-time that we know of. Maybe, you know what, actually now that I've given this segment, maybe there are all their universes. There's like a completely new multiverse out there. Maybe we're Absolutely. nested. One every time, every time you get comfortable, you're like, all right, all right, Earth's round. Like, fine, <laughs> right. fine, fine. But like, we're the center of the universe, right? Right. <laughs> and so I was like, no, it's the sun. Like, okay, well, come on. Like, you never know what you don't know that's right around the corner. Yeah. It's just our, it's just our like, universe, right? They're like, no, no, no. There's a whole other like galaxies out there. Like, oh, my God. Give me a break here. Oh, and they're moving further away from you. Oh, oh. and they're accelerating. Yep. So, you know, you never know. But as far as we know right now, there's nothing beyond the expansion of Correct. our universe. Right. So, okay. So this leaves us with a question. What is the fate of our universe? Yikes. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> is there an end? So the universe is expanding into the void. Yeah, but okay, here's a little extra for you. As of 1998, we also know that um, the expansion is accelerating. Mm -hmm. So not only is it that like the further away a galaxy is, it's moving faster, that is also accelerating. Like yes. the entire expansion of the universe is also accelerating. We don't know why. Is it dark energy? Maybe. <laughs> Who knows? Your guess is as good as mine. So, listeners, you can call in, tell us your theory of the universe. <laughs> yeah. And uh, we'll talk about it. Go to our Instagram. Kind of, just, we can have your fan theories as to <laughs> the actual what's happening in our universe. Theories. All right. So, let's try to extrapolate. What is the ultimate fate of the universe? Okay. So, let's throw back to Newton and his idea of gravity. Gravity is going to make this triumphant return. All right. So, <clears throat> so, all of the stars and planets and galaxies are in this very delicate gravitational ballet where they attract each other they orbit each other okay so um if there's enough and remember gravity as a force is dependent on how much mass you have but also how close you are to those other objects and what we've been telling you about the universe is that it's expanding away so those distances are increasing which means what my listeners that gravitational force between these objects is decreasing Right, but at least gravity is always attractive. Yes. Okay, so if there's enough mass in the universe, then everything, even though the universe is kind of accelerating, if there's enough mass, gravity will eventually win and start to pull things together again. So if there's enough mass, everything will slow down after accelerating, down. pause, and then crunch down into this <laughs> massive big crunch. And so this is if there's enough mass, the gravity will eventually win and everything will condense down. And then who knows, maybe a new Big Bang Another will come out bang. of this. Right. Yeah. So right now the force of acceleration of expansion is winning, and it has been winning since the birth of the universe. But at some point, we think there's going to be a flip where that energy, that force, is going to be won over by the mass of the universe, which will overtake any acceleration right. outward and start contracting. Things. And astronomers close, call this a closed universe. All right. So what about another case? If the universe does not have enough mass, then the universe will just keep expanding into nothingness and evaporate. And astronomers call this an open universe. <laughs> so if there's well, not enough mass, gravity can't beat out the expansion of the universe, and the universe will just go off to forever. Yeah. Is there a balance point? All right. So good. <laughs> so if there is just enough mass in the entire universe, a like literally rock. just, just, just enough, some very critical density, the expansion will slow down and stop, but the universe won't collapse and it won't expand again. This is called a flat universe. All right. So this is the ratio. This is called the cosmological constant. And it determines the fate of the universe. Mm. So scientists are interested in measuring this thing. And remarkably, 
this cosmological constant is almost exactly perfectly right for a flat universe. We have just the right amount of mass that the universe will stop expanding and stop and it won't big crunch, it won't evaporate. And so what the big field of research right now in astronomy is to figure out exactly how much mass there is, how much matter is there, how mm -hmm. much dark energy is there, how much dark matter is there, and will we evaporate into the nothingness of the eternal void? Will we be crunched down by our own weight? Or will we always be at this perfect, insta instable point and live forever? Mm -hmm. So let's end our our episode today with our lifting the veil segment so um what's going on with everyone recently what do they want to kind of clue in to our listeners about mm. Mm. i can say that i i uh for my research i recently got a shipment of more skulls from the yale peabody finally oh uh, mine haven't come in yet <laughs> i'm still waiting for mine. i got a whole box of skulls <laughs> that i can scan now and add to my data set so i'm really happy that that happened because i didn't know if it was going to and i needed some specimens that I couldn't really find elsewhere. So they finally mailed them to us so I can go and scan them now. So I have 12 skulls to go scan. You know, I recently went to the La Brea Tar Pits Museum in our very own Los Angeles, yeah. and they have a wall. It's so yes. it's so metal. Yes. It's <laughs> punk rock. It, it's a wall of like a thousand direwolf skulls. Mm -hmm. Brilliant. So awesome. If yeah. you love Game of Thrones. If you didn't know, direwolves are a, are a thing that existed. Like, that's not just Game yeah, of Thrones. Yeah. Dude, like, LA was definitely. lousy with them. Yeah. No, there's a, there's a ton of direwolves that are pulled out of the tar pit. So that's, it's a really cool place to go. I highly recommend you, you pay a visit if you haven't been there in a while or if you've never been there um, and see all the cool things they've pulled from the tar pits of Los Angeles. It's, a, it's an amazing resource for um, Pleistocene-era uh, big vertebrates, so things like mammoths and dire wolves and short-faced bears and the American cheetah and the American lion and things like that. So, Brr. Yeah. So for me, I am working on a project looking at a specific sleep characteristic. Mm -hmm. It is called a spindle and is associated mm. with learning. Hmm. So I'm trying to understand what these spindles are doing, which is just... An, a reflection of electrical activity that's happening on the cellular level, the population level. You see these spikes in activity hmm. that happen in the brain when you're asleep. And you measure that how? Through, like, the... How do you measure the electrical... EEGs. EEGs, yeah. okay, yeah. Yeah. So, so all the electrodes that they put on the heads of, of, of... In humans, yeah, you see people with head caps and they've got all these electrodes all over but their But in their rats, the you heads. can actually insert something. Correct. You do the little... Yeah. yeah. It can stick... Actual. We should throw a photo probes. of that on our Instagram or our website. It might it might nah, get flagged. Yeah, let's not. But <laughs> the research we get from it is extremely valuable, and the project I'm working on is looking at these sleep spindles and how stress affects learning and how and electrical can activity these and, and yeah, mm -hmm. super cool. So. For me, conceptually, that's all a beautiful idea. <laughs> it always is. Write it down. I can think about it. But I need to learn how to code. So <laughs> <laughs> I've never coded before. I'm, Coding, you say? Ah, yeah. 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 I, it's, it's learning a different language I'm over here like me. a fat kid looking at a donut. Like, <laughs> coding. <laughs> Teaching coding. Oh, I hope I am like that one day when it comes to I mean, you have I'll a, have to be. You have us as resources. If you yeah. want resources to tell you about good learning resources, I have lots of those. Yeah, so. yeah I mean, our lab has the code already. Oh, that's it's nice. Just me. Can I ask what language it's in? Yeah. Oh, 
I don't. I can't answer that because no. I didn't write it. <laughs> but well, what language do you have to learn to be able to? Like, what are you going to try and learn? Python oh, R. Oh, I. I Matlab. Like that. Matlab. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's what we use all of the, our codes. That's the for. rich, the rich scientists' language, <laughs> <laughs> because you have to pay to access Matlab. R is free, and so is Python. So yeah. those are what I work in. Yeah. R. That's definitely something that I thought about learning, but because our lab, all of our code is through Matlab. Mm-hmm. That's what my focus is right now. Well, good luck to you. It's it's it's, it's a, a it's a good skill. It's a to learn. This is kind of a novel. Yeah, I'm really like. I'll be very happy once I get my bearings. <laughs> this is a novel a part of grad school that I don't know that many people fully appreciate is that you have this like research that you want to do. But between you and getting answers in that research, there's a lot of skills you have to learn. Yep. Yeah. And so when you go to grad school, no one's holding your hand and saying, like, we're going to learn this, we're going to learn that, yeah. and then you're going to do your research. Like in Raquel's situation, she has to learn how to com- learn how to do computer programming. And it's not that she's learning it for computer programming's sake. She's learning it to understand about sleep and understand yeah. about neurophysiology. Yeah. And so, but no one is really there to hold it's your a hand. Struggle. You have to. You have Spoiler to, alert. Yeah. So your advisor is like, "We need you to analyze this data." Full stop. And then, like, how do you do that? That's totally up to you. Yeah. Yeah. To learn it. So, Kyle, what about you? What's going on in your 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 life? Well, I want to bring up two things. The okay. first is that lately, um, I've had a colleague who's. Um, he's moving on to a new job. So lately, we've been trying to finish this bottle of whiskey that it, it turns out he keeps in lab. <laughs> I, there's always one of those, no? Always. You guys don't have like an alcohol, like a hard liquor somewhere in your we lab? don't have an actual area completely dedicated to it, no. But like a bottle, right? There's always a bottle. Like the, yeah, so, has. but this is kind of, the, this is like another part of uh, grad life people maybe don't understand is that there's a lot of like idle banter and just like shit talking that's just going on in lab. Like we're eating cookies, we're drinking whiskey. <laughs> Yeah, talking Shop about how shop. lousy our advisor is, our research isn't working, and we're doing it in labs. I'm surrounded by test tubes and weird shit. <laughs> but this is a, it's an For important me, I'm part. I'm surrounded by skulls, and I'm like, oh yeah, I just was digging through this box of of dog skulls, and now I'm gonna go eat lunch and I'm eat just surrounded by computers. So when you pass when you pass the the labs, you're gonna see students, and there there's a, maybe a good chance that some of them are drinking whiskey and yeah. complaining about their advisor. There's, you know, I feel like it's always good to have some alcohol on hand to do a cheers or like anytime there's yeah, like something or like someone's leaving or whatever paper gets published yeah. always need a little yeah. celebratory yeah and so the other thing that i've been up to is i've been going to lectures completely outside of school completely outside my field oh, so, that's I went, cool. so i went to a lecture on immigration and so it was the Ooh. science of immigration in la and this herpetologist from ucla and the director of graduate information herpetologist Who, what's their name what? um i forget their names herpetologists <gasps> study reptiles but so one guy was talking about natural migration and then the other guy was talking about human migration mm. and he laid out this thesis that migration is the human destiny it's always been in our genome like even before we were homo sapiens we were moving we were moving out of africa moving into europe moving into asia moving into north america and so he wanted to put this in a modern context and he saying that like people don't necessarily want to leave their hometowns they only migrate for the sake of love and for work mm. you're going to follow love and work and so if there's no work where you are, there's no resources, there's no economy, you have to move. And so this is very, very, very much true in Los Angeles, which is a city of nations, not just of neighborhoods, but of nations. Mm-hmm. Many nations' second biggest city is in L.A. So Mexico's second biggest city, L.A. Incredible, right? And so L.A. is composed of these many nations. Yeah. And so he finished with this note that said, like, if you really want to stop migration and if you want to stop immigration— Join the Paris Climate Accord again. 
save the environment, give people work, give people back their resources. Mm -hmm. And I think that this, by getting out of my own research and seeing a lecture that I don't necessarily know anything about, I think I gained like a really new perspective on life and how the world works. And I think yeah. that was really enlightening. And so I encourage all our listeners to take a step out of their own field, yeah. find a cool lecture, and just sit and listen and yeah. learn something. Uh, you learn a lot that way. I, I always try and attend a lot of the visiting seminars yeah. that visit our department because it's so informative, and even outside our department. But mm -hmm. I highly encourage stepping outside of your, your comfort zone or what you think about on the day-to-day -day and challenge yourself to think about something new yeah so thank you for joining us again today i hope uh you had fun with our space segment i know we did so um definitely you know take what you've learned today and and propagate and and go do through your own avenues of research and whatever interests you today go read up some more about it there's so much um great resources out there like youtube videos there's great research that's being done so Take this little kernel of knowledge and, and go forth, just like the universe is expanding. Expand. expand your knowledge of the universe. And thank you for joining us today. Again, with you was Christian. Raquel. And Kyle. Hopefully, will you all join us next week? Hi, I'm Christian, and thank you for joining us today on Insufficient Facts. If you love science like we do, then we invite you to join our exclusive Fact Finders Club. As a fact finder, you will get access to suggested readings, our notes on the show topics, blogs that take you behind the scenes of our lives as scientists, and access to a finder's exclusive chat space that includes Q&As with the team and the ability to submit questions and topics for future episodes. By joining, not only do you support the show and the panelists, but you'll gain access to resources and bonus extras that we don't release anywhere else. And you'll receive a merch pack that includes our official enamel pin, show art sticker, and thank you card. To join, visit our website, insufficientfacts.com. And now, please enjoy the trailer for our sponsor, All In My Head. To listen to their show, visit their website, allinmyheadpod.com. So, Nova, what would you like to talk about today? I just want to get some sleep, Dr. Andrews. Quiet. Quiet. So, sleeping. When we talked on the phone, you told me you suffer from sleep paralysis quite frequently. <laughs> you aren't real. You aren't real. Keep quiet. Four years. I have to say, that's... Unprecedented. You, you don't exist. When I wake up, you'll be gone. Quiet, little girl. Can't let you scream. You are not real. You're just a bad dream. Quiet! Now, how are you going to fix me?